Please turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We've been preparing for elections and officers. We've been looking at some of the formal and informal ministries in the church, and I want to read verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say to you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Amen. Father God, we come to you, and it is our desire to tremble at your word, to honor it, to live it out, and I pray that we would be both hearers and doers of that work. I pray, Father, that you would enable uh, me to faithfully preach this word, to uh, not uh, bring forth any uh, error, but, Father, to uh, just bring the word, the whole word, and nothing but the word, and may each one of us uh, grow as we receive it as that implanted word by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> For those of you who have... Uh, not been part of this series. Uh, Titus is a marvelously concise treatment of uh, ministries in the church, whether they're formal ministries or whether they're informal ministries. And there are a number of other books that go into much more detail. First and Second uh, Timothy, First and Second Corinthians, uh, go into a great deal of, uh, of um, uh, detail. But I've wanted to go through this series rather quickly, so I've picked Titus because it uh, really does nail things in a concise, concise manner. The first four verses give a marvelously concise summary of the foundations of ministry for any office. And then verse 5 showed that having teaching elder Titus was not enough. Uh, they needed ruling elders as well, and he uses the word for broken limbs there, and he said, we need ruling elders to fix the spiritually... Uh, broken limbs that are in the congregation, the preaching ministry of Titus was not enough. They needed a household and individual level ministry. And we saw that Christ taught on both levels. Uh, he preached publicly, but he also ministered to people individually. And he was training his disciples to be preachers, but before they ever had a chance to preach, he was mentoring them in eldership-type uh, responsibilities. Uh, it wasn't until Acts that they really got to preach publicly. They were involved in a house-to-house -house type of ministry, an individual ministry, and were very effective uh, in that. And so we looked at the importance of the ruling elder. Uh, we saw that uh, even though there is uh, one office of elder, that within that office that there are two uh, orders. We also saw that there was what we call a parity of elders, 
Parity means an equality. It's an equality of elders when it comes to vote on any of the courts of the church. I don't have any more vote at Presbytery or General Assembly than, than any other elder would have. So two offices, elder and deacon, within the office of elder in both the Old and the New Testaments, we saw that there were two orders. And we looked at a, a number of other unique areas that ruling elders serve in. And I think it's a shame that in some PCA churches, those two orders have been so merged that I think what's happened is that the function of the ruling elder has been done down, dumbed down. It's almost evaporated. Uh, verses 5 through 9 deal with the qualifications of the ruling elder. Verses 10 through 16, the work of the ruling elder. And then now in chapter 2, Paul says, but as for you, and he highlights the unique ministries that Titus, teaching elder Titus, was to be engaged in. Now, that, some of that was already implied in chapter 1 because Titus was involved in verse 5 in uh, working with uh, getting elders and in training the elders, making sure they meet the qualifications and overseeing the ministry that was there. But here there are some unique things that are involved in Titus's life that we want to look at. Now, as I said, there are additional teaching elder ministries in the other books that I mentioned, First and Second Timothy, First and Second Corinthians, but I think all of those can be lumped under three categories. And the, the outline that's in your, we're not even going to be touching that outline that's in your um, worship notes today. All you need to remember is three things, okay? First point is that there is a teaching ministry to the church as a whole, Secondly, there is an overseeing work of various ministries of the church. And then thirdly, there is a representing of presbytery and a relating to presbytery. And I think everything else can be subsumed under those three categories. First is the public ministry of the word, and you can see that all through chapters 2 and 3. Let's begin at verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Now, the Greek word for speak is laleo. And it's based on the Greek word lalo, which means to be talkative. Now, if you're a talkative person, that means your presence is characterized by speech, right? And so this uh, carries the idea that there is something about this person's characterized uh, his ministry by speech. Uh, other translations are speak forth or proclaim. And we don't know if Titus was as shy as Timothy was. Um, but for some reason, he needs to be commanded to speak. Now, in the previous chapter, we saw there are some people who he didn't want speaking. He wanted their mouths to be stopped, but the teaching elder may not shut his mouth. He must speak the word. He may not close it. His whole ministry is characterized by speech. Now, I don't know why it is that God has chosen to use what he speaks of as the foolishness of preaching, uh, as one of the primary means by which he advances his cause. I have no idea. And there is an irony there. That's why the scripture calls it the foolishness of preaching. But God has chosen and reformed people have emphasized more than any other medium of communication, preaching and teaching of God's word. And you can see its impact in history, especially during times of uh, reformation and times of revival. Uh, you can think, for example, of the first great awakening. Uh, yes, people were ministered to by devotional literature and theology and commentaries that they read. But you can see the remarkable contrast as people, preachers like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and um, uh, Gilbert uh, Tennant 
and uh, Samuel Davies, uh, David Brainerd, Eliezer Wheelock, and some of the others, it seemed that there was a moving, a powerful explosion of God's Spirit, as it were, upon people's lives through the preaching of the Word. And it doesn't matter how much technology that is developed Preaching will never be done away with, according to the Scripture. It does not matter how good they get virtual reality. It doesn't matter how emotionally moving videos are and drama may be. Nothing, according to God, is going to replace the preaching of His Word. The spoken ministry is very, very important to God. And so the first thing Titus is commanded to do is to speak and to keep on speaking. Uh, Other synonyms that are used to characterize his ministry are exhort, that's in verses 6, 9, and 15, doctrine, verses 1, 7, and 10, sound speech, verse 8, verse 15, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, chapter 3, remind, that's in verse 1, constantly affirm, that's in verse 8. And so the first thing we need to see is a teaching elder is supposed to teach. Okay, that should be obvious. And his teaching is not restricted to what 501c organizations are supposed to teach. It's not restricted to what is uh, entertaining, what is uh, easy to follow along with. Uh, He is supposed to teach comprehensively according to Paul. And uh, we'll take a look at some of the things. Let's start again at verse 1. Uh, He is to teach both doctrine and the practical things that flow from doctrine. He says, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Later on, he commands the sound doctrine. Now, commentaries, if you read in the commentaries, you'll notice that they say there's two things in here that are quite distinct. There is the sound doctrine, and then there is the practical application of those doctrines in people's lives, in Christian living, that he goes on to talk about in the rest of this chapter. Uh, Both of those things are important, and without application, you do not have preaching. Without application, you do not have preaching. Yet that's the thing that gets us ministers into trouble, isn't it? (laughs) It's not when we just give the doctrine generically. It's when we begin applying that into the concrete details, and yet Paul says you've got to apply the Word of God. It has to be practical in their lives. Now, some of the practical things that flow from the preaching are the holy lives that the older men are supposed to live in verse 2. The qualifications for these women who are to be discipling younger women, verse 3. The way that younger men and the older, uh, yeah, the younger uh, women are supposed to live, verses 4 through 8. He's supposed to get personal in his preaching with employees and employers in verses 9 through 10. And the next verse indicates he's supposed to teach on grace and law and, yes, eschatology and atonement and good works. That's verses 11 through 15. And here comes a controversial one, chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. There's a lot of churches won't preach on politics. And yet, if you look through the Bible, there's a great deal of the Bible that deals with politics. Now, here's the point. Here's the point. Preaching must be made practical, okay? It's not enough to preach on the Trinity. We need to also be teaching the so what. And this whole chapter is preoccupied with the so what of doctrine. What does it make a difference in our concrete day-to-day Christian living? That's what the application is. And let me just give you an example of how doctrine is supposed to be uh, practical. Um, What difference does it make that we believe in the Trinity, that there are three persons 
and one God rather than that there is one person. Well, it makes a profound difference in many different areas, but it makes a profound difference in our perspective of what love is all about. If God was a Unitarian God, if he was only one person, then imagine what things would be like prior to there being any creation to love, any angels, any humans. The scripture still describes God as being love. So what would be the character of that love? Who would he be loving? The only person to love would be himself, right? It would be a very self-oriented, a very selfish love. But the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity says that the Father always loved the Son and the Spirit, and the Son loved the Spirit and the Father, and the Spirit loved the Son and the Father. In other words, it was always a self-giving, outgoing love, and that was to be a model for our love. Not selfish love, but agape love. And now that transforms how you do counseling. There are many counselors out there that teach that before a person can learn how to love others, he has to first work through the process of learning how to love himself. And Paul says, no, that's not the problem, folks. The problem is you love, each other, you love yourselves far too much. He says in, in Ephesians... Uh, chapter 5, verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. And you might think, well, wait a minute. I know some people who hate themselves. They, in fact, they hate themselves so much they've committed suicide. And you know what the Scripture would say is, no, they don't hate themselves. They are so preoccupied with their own pain, their own sorrow, their own guilt, that what they are doing is they are selfishly trying to do away with that and ditching their responsibilities and uh, ditching uh, what impact that's going to have upon their loved ones that they're leaving in the lurch just so that they can feel better. It's really the ultimate of self-love. It is not uh, a contradiction to what Paul uh, says here. Now, we, we don't need to go down that rabbit trail any further, but I, I give that to illustrate that all doctrine has implications, profound implications for the doctrine of the Trinity. If you want to read an excellent book that describes that, read R.J. Rushdoony's book, The Foundations of Social Order. He goes through and he shows how the creeds of Christendom profoundly changed revolutionized Western civilization. It formed Western civilization. Predominantly, the doctrines of Christology and the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, the doctrine of Scripture is very, it must be, very practical. And if you think that doctrine is boring, you've just been reading the wrong books. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. And Paul says in the last sentence there, these things are good and profitable to men. They're profitable. They're practical. Now take a look at chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that, and I want you to notice the connection of the good works that he's talking about with doctrine, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Our good works beautify, they adorn, they show forth the character of our doctrine, and it does so universally, he says, in all things. Doctrine is practical if it is taught well. And actually, this is uh, the way that you can judge the ministry of any teaching elders that you may uh, vote for in the future. Uh, are they biblical in their doctrine? And secondly, are they practical? Okay, does the doctrine they teach 
impact the relationship of employees to employers, of the way a husband loves his wife, of the way the wife loves her husband and loves her children? Does it affect our social relationships in the world? If it does not, then the teacher has not yet plumbed the depths of that doctrine. Now, Lord willing, next Sunday we're going to be looking at the informal leadership that God is uh, wanting to establish in this church in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But Titus's ministry not only needs to inform that leadership, it needs to be practical enough that it makes a difference on how wives love their husbands. Take a look at verse 4 and verse 5. He says in verse 5, how to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Now, Paul could care less about the word of Marxism that is taught in so many churches. He could care less about the word of psychology. He wants people's lives conformed to the scriptures. And if there is not a connection from the pulpit to the lives of people, then the word of God is blasphemed. If the word of God, if doctrine is not being lived out, the word of God is being blasphemed, according to Paul. And teacher, teaching elders who do not understand, they are shaming their profession. They are making the profession of the teaching elder irrelevant or at best entertaining. Now, there are some things we're not even supposed to touch. We're not even supposed to teach. Take a look at chapter 3, verse 9. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Now, the term strivings about the law literally is battles of lawyers. And he's not talking about civil lawyers. He was talking about the religious uh, church lawyers that the Christ was in constant conflict with because they were twisting the law of God and they were adding all kinds of man-made traditions uh, to, to those laws. Now, when Paul wrote... To Timothy, he wrote almost phrase by phrase some of the exact same things earlier that he had written to Titus. He, he abbreviates it here. There he expands on what he means. He's not talking about the biblical genealogies. Those are profitable. Paul says every word of Scripture is profitable. And he's not talking about Old Testament law. There he says there are vain dealings with the law. But then he says, but the law is good if one uses it lawfully. What he's talking about is Talmudic law. He was opposed to the legalistic additions to the law and the twisting of the law that these lawyers had engaged in. And let me tell you something. The moment preachers begin to add to God's word their opinions or legalistic rules, you know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, don't uh, add infinitum. There's all kinds of rules that people add on. What they are doing is they are basing their ministry of the word. God has called teaching elders to be teachers of the Word of God. The responsibility to teach, man, it's an incredibly high responsibility. And I tremble when I prepare God's Word every week because I know I'm going to be coming into judgment if I do not handle this Word in a godly way, if I am handling it improperly. Now, because ruling elders do teach some, they too are held to a high standard in chapter 1. But because the teaching elder's ministry is so characterized by the Word of God, he is held to an even higher standard. And so that's the first ministry of a teaching elder. And any teaching elders that you call to dominion really need to have a high caliber of teaching. Second ministry that our Book of Church Order gives to a teaching elder is organizational. Uh, he oversees all of the ministries of the church on a day-to-day -day basis. He's kind of the glue that keeps these ministries going. 
Now, it's true that a ruling elder who was maybe hired, full-time, paid ruling elder could do at least some of what Titus is doing in this book, but in your packets, I have, and I, I'm, I'm sure that's not complete, but I just quickly went through and listed 25, I came up with, unique ministries that the Book of Church Order gives to the teaching elder, and you can see some of those here. Not all of them. Uh, not all of the ones that are listed in Timothy are listed here. For example, it doesn't mention the sacraments. Uh, although some people say that what's symbolized by baptism is mentioned in verse 5, the washing of regeneration and uh, renewing of the, the, the Holy Spirit. But in any case, not all of the ministries are listed here. Why? Because they're already listed in First and Second Timothy, First and Second Corinthians. And for that matter, they've been anticipated in the Old Testament. Uh, one of the things you need to keep in mind is that we talked before about Titus as teaching elder corresponding to the Levites in the Old Testament that were scattered throughout Israel and the uh, elders, ruling elders, corresponding to the tribal uh, elders in the Old Testament. In fact, when I was reading through um, our Book of Church Order, I, I came across uh, uh, a statement where they were tying the Old Testament uh, offices in with the new. And there was always a division of labor between them. Now, if you want a verse that you, you can really stump uh, uh, an unbelieving Jew with, have them read Isaiah 66, verse 21 sometime. And that is a verse where the uh, writer Isaiah is prophesying that in the New Covenant period, God is going to take from the Gentiles uh, some people who will serve as Levites before him. You read the Jewish commentaries, man, they stumble all over themselves on that one. How could a Gentile be a Levite? That's a tribal distinction. But apparently God is saying there that in the New Testament period, even though the tribal distinctions would do, be done away with, the office, the function of Levite would continue on into the New Testament. Now, you once buy into that, everything else falls into place. It makes perfect sense. And so Jesus... He speaks of there being scribes in the church. Now, those Levitical scribes corresponded to the teaching, uh, the, the teaching elder. And I think it's been a disaster in some PCA churches that the roles of teaching elder and ruling elder have been confused or have not been clearly spelled out. One office, and there is a very important reason for that one office, I think, but two orders. Now, I'm not going to bore you with all of the 25 ministries that are are listed there. Instead, I want to quickly give some hints of the ministries that teaching elder Titus helped to organize. Um, we already saw in chapter 1, verse 5, Titus was responsible to help the church to select uh, ruling elders. Verses 6 through 9 indicate he was responsible to train them, make sure that they met the biblical qualifications. Verses 10 through 16 show that Titus was responsible to organize, to oversee the work of the ruling elders. Chapter 2, Paul wants Titus to organize and oversee the ministry of the older men and the ministry of the older or the mature women as well in that congregation. We're going to be looking at the informal ministries next week, Lord willing. But for now, I just want you to notice, it's Titus' responsibility to make sure, for example, that the informal ministry of the mature men in verse 2 meets certain standards. He says he wants them to be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. He doesn't just want anybody involved in informal ministry. Um, 
formal ministry had its qualifications, chapter 1. Informal ministry, he says, boy, you need to really make sure these people are mature, that they are godly. Obviously not on the same level as the ruling elders, but uh, he, he, he is supposed to make sure that, that um, they have these qualifications. Verses 3 through 8 set out the qualifications of those who aspire to be women involved in one-on-one discipleship of other women. And Titus shows leadership there as well. Then in verses 6 through 8, Titus has a special relationship of discipling the young men. Uh, It's a men's ministry, if you will. He's wanting to make sure these men are the best fathers. They're prepared to be what they should be. And I also want you to notice that there's not a corresponding women's ministry that Paul is teaching. The women's ministry is women mentoring one-on-one other women. But Paul does do the, uh, he does the oversight of everything, but he does have a mentoring, and not just a mentoring, but also a, uh, a more formal ministry of the young men. Now, one thing you may be curious about is how does Titus's oversight ministry correlate with the session's oversight ministry? Because they're called bishops too, aren't they? They're called overseers, we already saw in chapter 1. And some people might say, well, they oversee uh, the families. And that's not uh, true. It's one individual elder that oversees ten families. But the session as a whole oversees everything that's going on in the church. And so how does that work out in terms of relationship between the two? Um, I want to just give you a hint, uh, a, a bit of a feel of how the relationship works And I think it's important that you keep in in your mind the distinction between elders in their individual function, and that's what the Scripture speaks of, the elders function, I mean, not Scripture, the Book of Church Order says they act severally, and then elders as they work as a session, that's jointly that their, their work is in. You keep those two distinct, and I think some of the things will fall together. Now, of all of the methods I've seen in the PCA in use for administering some of the different ministries, I think the one that has been by far the closest to the biblical ideal has been by Bob Beal. Some of you are already familiar with it. And it's called Master Planning. And uh, I was trained in that by the guy who heads up Coral Ridge Ministries um, Evangelism and Outreach uh, Department or Christ Community. There's a lot of big churches, Reformed and non-Reformed, uh, that use this method. And I'll try to get a copy of it for the library, uh, get Bear maybe to make a, a photocopy for us because I got special permission just for our ministry. I can't do it for others, but just for our ministry to get copies of it. Now, there are a number of things I like about this approach. For one thing, it ensures that the pastor and the session do not micromanage those who head up various ministries, including the individual ministries of the elders, But at the same time, it ensures that both pastor and session are clearly informed on what is happening within the church. In fact, it's one of the best flows of communication that I've seen of any of the uh, the different plans. Um, And we see the same pattern here in this book. It's not Titus who does the work of chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, and it's not the session as a whole. It's not elders working jointly, it's elders working severally in that passage. In other words, that's their individual ministry. So again, keep that distinct. And it's not Titus nor the session who does the work that's uh, in the verses we've been reading in chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 10. But 
he and the elders need to know that ministry is happening and need to know what is happening. So he gives oversight. Now, another reason I like Bob Beal's approach is it gives both the pastor and every person who heads up a ministry in the church the ability to cast vision for what they are involved in, to plan and to strategize. But it also gives the session the final say of approval uh, or disapproval, not for the strategies, but for the overall plan and for the budget. And that's as it should be. There should be accountability in place for every ministry. And here's what would happen once we get a session in place. I think it might be helpful for you to see how this works out. Once a year, we would have a meeting that's specially designed to uh, deal with our plans for the next year. And prior to that meeting, I would be responsible for uh, developing a budget and a master plan, a master planning arrow, and I would do it in consultation with all of the people individually who are heading up various ministries. And so we'd bring all of this material together. Uh, I'd present it in, on paper, and two weeks before the meeting, the elders would be given that. They would read over all of the stuff. And they would be responsible then to mark every item in there as green, yellow, or red. Uh, green mark means they agree with it. We wouldn't even discuss those, okay? Or you don't even have to mark the ones. It wouldn't have to be everything marked green. But the yellows mean, well, there's some cautions here, or maybe I need more information. I don't understand what's going on. And the reds would mean I'm at least tentatively, you know, kind of opposed. I don't think this is best in this plan. And so what would happen at that meeting is I would come to the meeting and any people who are heading up individual ministries would come to that meeting and we would try to describe why these things that are in red really are integral to accomplishing what they've already said is great, you know, is in the green or that it's important or perhaps we would say, you know what? You're right, we can ditch this thing. That's not an important thing. And at the end of the meeting, we would vote up or down all of the red items, and then we'd vote up or down the, meeting, uh, the, 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 budget as, uh, uh, the budget and the master planning arrow as a whole. Now, sometimes what might happen is that the elders would say, you know, we like the plan as a whole, but we see potential problems here. We want you to take it back to the drawing board. And so I'd be responsible to meet with the ministry heads that were involved in that part, we would retool it, take it back to the session, and hopefully the second time around uh, that it would be approved. But you can see there's a balance of, of roles. Each individual is taken seriously who's heading up ministries, but there's an oversight accountability that the session is responsible to uh, provide as well. Uh, so that's kind of an overview of how that would happen. So the senior pastor sets the agenda uh, sets the vision, the ministry initiatives, but the session approves or disapproves, sends back for refinement. Um, for the most part, tactics and strategies would be left to the discretion of the ministry, people who are heading up ministries, so long as they're within the parameters, the bounds that the session has given. Now, I see the same kind of balance at least hinted at in this book. There's no mention here of elders voting on anything, but it does indicate that the informal ministries have parameters. They have boundaries within which they must operate, but it appears to give all kinds of liberty, 
you know, as to how they're going to strategize, the tactics that they're going to use to accomplish the goals that Paul said uh, should be set out here. So it's a very decentralized ministry, and that's what I like about Bob Beale's approach. It's streamlined, and it's been very, very effective where it's been used all over the states. Now, I've just barely this morning touched on three of the 25 ministries that the BCO says teaching elders must oversee or be involved in themselves, but hopefully it'll give you a little bit of a feel for what's involved there. Now, there's one last role that Titus has, and we won't spend a lot of time on this, but it is an important one. It's our relationship to presbytery. Now, we've already seen that the ruling elders are members of the local church, and they represent the church when there's a presbytery meeting. They are sent as delegates, as representatives of the congregation. Titus has the exact reverse role. Remember we said that I do not have membership in the local church. I have membership in the presbytery, and I represent the presbytery to the uh, local congregation. And by the way, we mentioned before the reason for that, and Presbyterians are the only ones I know of that have picked up on this, but in the Old Testament, God put a check and balance into place with the Levitical preachers who were scattered in every community throughout Israel. They were the teachers in the synagogues. Um, those Levites, they could have maybe lived in the tribe of Dan or tribe of Judah or some other tribe. They may have lived there generation after generation. They just felt part of the community, but their membership still was in the tribe of Levi. Why did God work it that way? It was one of those checks and balances to preserve the integrity of the word. And, you know, the more I've studied the checks and balances in Presbyterianism, the more I'm just, you know, amazed at uh, the wisdom, you know, of those fathers that put those things together. But it flowed, it wasn't their fathers, it was God. He put it in the Old Testament, right? Um, so, anyway, in chapter five, 1, verse 5, we saw that Paul left Titus in Crete. He was an import. For this reason, I left you in Crete. He was not a local like the elders were. Secondly, Titus kept his ties very closely with Paul's ministry team. Now, you can see that just in the fact Paul's sending him this letter with all of the instructions in it. But you can see it in chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, and the relationships he has with these presbytery men, the oversight committee, if you will, that he is working with. Once it becomes a, an established church, he would have to travel to presbytery, and so would some of the delegates, the ruling elders from the, the local church as well, and uh, make reports. But in this letter, Titus is the spokesperson through whom Paul, and later presbytery, is going to be communicating to the church. He's the messenger, if you will. And by the way, the term messenger is used in the book of Revelation to refer to the uh, senior pastor of that, uh, of that local church. Uh, it's translated in my version here, New King James, as the angel. Uh, but angelos, the majority of times, is just translated as messenger, so it's context that would dictate whether it's angel or messenger. So here's what he says to them. To the messenger of the church of Ephesus, write. To the messenger of the church of Smyrna, write. To the messenger of the church of Pergamos, write. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. Titus is the messenger, he is the legate, he is the representative through whom Presbytery will speak. And so this is why our Book of Church Order says it's always the teaching elder that makes Presbytery declarations. 
A lot of people are confused because they think ruling elder and teaching elder are the same. Why are they always having the teaching elder doing some of these things? Why? Because he has a membership there. He has to represent the presbytery when it's making declarations. Like when we have installation services here, he will make the declaration that ruling elders have been duly installed. Hopefully, Phil Kaiser has been duly installed. If you guys vote for me, um, it, it, it'll be a teaching elder that comes here and, and does that. And chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, again, just gives some hints uh, that there's, there's this ongoing relationship with people from outside. When I, sent, when I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Now, Titus doesn't spend the winter there, but Paul is there, so he has to travel. Why? Because he needs feedback. And Paul is sending somebody to replace him while Titus is gone. And uh, so that's the kind of relationship, and I'm sure this morning's sermon has been kind of dry, uh, you know, at points, but it's so important. It's so important. If these principles of the role relationships of officers that you find in Paul's epistles, if they're not in place, the church will falter. And um, since we're having elections coming up, I thought it was very important that you see how the PCA carries out the role relationships there. This book calls us to value the teaching ministry, the oversight ministry, and the connectional ministry that the teaching elders bring to the church. And I decided to devote an entire sermon since we're going to be voting on Glenn Durham coming. And, uh, well, hopefully on him. It'll, if it's not him, it'll be somebody else uh, uh, coming. But uh, we need to value the ruling elders. We need to value the teaching elders. We need to value the deacons. We need to value the informal ministries that we're going to be looking at next week. And if we do, I think this church is going to have a solid base in which to launch out into our community. Let's pray. Father God, we thank and bless you for the systems that you have put in place in your word. Father, they are, they are so awesome uh, to see how uh, when... We follow your blueprints. Things can work out. But, Father, when we ignore them, it's to our own detriment. It's to our own hurt. Help us, Father, as a church to uh, be uh, rock solid in our foundations and the relationships that officers have with each other, that members have with officers and officers with members. I just pray, Father, that... Uh, this church would be strengthened and we wouldn't even have to worry. It would be so smoothly functioning that we could devote all of our energies to taking this Gideon's army and uh, taking on uh, the hosts that are out there. And Father, may you be honored, may you be glorified, and may your people be strengthened, encouraged, and uh, ministered to. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.